Welcome to the Ortho Eval Pal Podcast, where we can help you build confidence with your orthopedic evaluation and management skills. We hope you enjoy the show. And now, for your host, Paul Marquis. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 330 of the Ortho Eval Pal Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Marquis, and today we're going to be talking about commonly missed orthopedic diagnoses. We're going to go over why some diagnoses are missed. We'll talk about some of our patients who I've seen with misdiagnoses, give you some examples of some common and even some not so common misdiagnoses, and we'll talk about some tips on what direction to take if you do miss a diagnosis with a patient or come across a patient who was misdiagnosed. Um, but first of all, I want to start off by thanking you, okay? Thanking all of you who stopped by our booth at CSM in Boston. It was absolutely phenomenal to meet with you. I'm telling you, it's just so great to, you know, get some confirmation that what I'm doing makes a difference. I love listening to everybody's enthusiasm and stories. It was, it was just great. I mean, I'm talking about over 400 vendors, over 1,500 attendees. Um, it was just absolutely crazy. Uh, so thank you for making it worth it for me to do what I continue to do. And I appreciate you taking the time out of your day to come over and, and meet and chat and shake hands and whatnot. So that was uh, absolutely great. Uh, next thing I want to tell you is that I just came down with a little head cold. So we might sound a little stuffy today, but we're on with the show. So now as we get into our show today, I want to say that I'm not here to criticize the providers who send me patients who may have misdiagnosed them. We need to remember a couple things. You know, we... I specialize in orthopedics and sports. It's something that I do day in and day out. And so I see a lot of it. So I, my diagnostic skills may be a little bit better than other providers. Uh, somebody comes in and uh, I'm treating them for a frozen shoulder, let's say, one day. And they come in and they, they start having abdominal pain. I, I have no idea where to start with that. So I would send them back to their provider and that's what they specialize in. So I would, you know, you need to take this with a grain of salt. Uh, I have missed my share of diagnoses. We are here to learn, right? Okay, to learn from some of our mistakes so that we can cut that learning bell curve down a little bit. And, um, you know, sometimes if you hear some of these stories when you're evaluating your patients, this might pop back in your head and say, you know what, I've heard of this before and uh, may have you think in a different direction, maybe think outside of the box a little bit, okay? So here is what you should ask yourself when evaluating a patient. Is there anything here that seems critical, life-altering? Is there, are there any red flags, something that just doesn't fit the picture here? You know, ask yourself those questions when you are talking to your patient, when you are questioning your patient, and if the answers don't fit together, they may not fit and there may be something going on. So what I'm going to do today is I'm just going to start in with uh, some of the diagnoses that have been missed out there. Um, and uh, we will just, you know, talk about, first of all, why that happens. Why do we go down the wrong path when evaluating patients uh, on occasion? So something I've seen, uh, number one, would be that maybe the patient is a poor historian, just doesn't give very clear answers to your questions when asked. Uh, they hum and haw. They don't have good time frames. Uh, maybe they don't remember the mechanism. There could be so many factors. Oftentimes, like I, I saw this this week, like somebody had injured their shoulder, came into therapy, and then started to tell me about how they had injured that shoulder, you know, a year and a half ago. And it's very possible that what they did is just re-aggravate an old injury. And so, you know, getting that history could be very important in how you uh, move forward with your evaluation. 
Is there a language barrier? Uh, in my neck of the woods, uh, we have seen patients who speak only French. Uh, luckily, I speak French only, but uh, we also have had some Spanish-speaking people in our area, which uh, is very rare. Nobody up here speaks um, Spanish very fluently, so we've had to use translator programs and things like that. So a language barrier can make a big difference uh, in regards to how you get a nice, clean evaluation out of that patient. Um, some people have only very limited time to spend with a patient. I've had many providers tell us that we would love to be able to learn how to evaluate patients faster and more efficiently because we're given 10 to 15 minutes to evaluate the patient and make some recommendations. And we know that some evaluations can take a long time. It could be um, very difficult because there may be multiple issues going on. And so it can take some time. And if you don't have all that time, you may not be able to get to a great uh, diagnosis with that patient. Maybe the provider is, um, and maybe yourself, maybe you're not very strong in the field of uh, orthopedic evaluations, and I see this uh, a lot. And uh, I hear this constantly from mid-level providers who say, you know, we went to school, we had probably 5% of our classes were orthopedic. And then we get out into the real world and we're into a family practice situation where 40 to 45, sometimes 50% of the caseload is orthopedic. And so um, they may not feel quite comfortable with that. Or somebody changes from, um, you know, doing geriatric care for a long time or doing home care therapy and then getting into an outpatient orthopedic practice. Uh, it takes a little uh, while to brush up on your evaluation skills, review anatomy, and uh, those are all parts of you know trying to get back to doing a better evaluation. Next, was a patient appropriately exposed um, so that you could see the location of the injury? And I'll give you an example here in just a little bit of uh, how this happened. And it was uh, one of my my, I would say, favorite diagnoses that I had seen that was missed. And um, it was a very, very interesting presentation. And had we just exposed the um, shoulder a little bit uh, during the first evaluation, we probably would have found what we needed to find. So, um, so there may be several reasons why uh, you misdiagnose a patient or why somebody is misdiagnosed. It's not super uncommon. The key here, though, is, um, you know, you want to make sure that you don't miss something that is serious. So always think about that when you're evaluating your patient. You rule out those serious problems first, and then you can go from there. As long as if you miss a diagnosis, a patient is still safe and not going to hurt themselves, then that's icing on the cake, okay? So there's no way I could go over all of the misdiagnoses that I've seen in my career. Just, uh, you know, I've seen so many of them, but I'll certainly give you some of my favorites and uh, give you some idea about maybe why they were missed, okay? So I've got, uh, let's see here, I've got seven of them. And um, like I said, so many more out there that I've seen. Uh, so one of uh, the my all-time favorites was a female who fell on the ice. She slipped and uh, landed on her butt, struck her elbow pretty hard with an axial load, and uh, ended up in the emergency department. Her diagnosis was rotator cuff tendonitis. They did x-rays. Gave her some medication. A couple days later, she came back. Uh, she was still having a significant amount of pain. She then uh, had an MRI. They diagnosed her with rotator cuff tendinopathy. She ended up uh, in a sling because she couldn't lift her arm. She was having severe shoulder discomfort. I ended up in her 
uh, OB's office uh, for a visit with the sling on. And uh, after evaluation, OB said, I'd really like you to head down to physical therapy and see Paul. And so I took a look at her. And when I asked her to actively flex her shoulder, she had zero degrees of active shoulder flexion and abduction. So she also had excellent cervical spine range of motion. Uh, she had some uh, loss of reflex C5 and uh, some loss of biceps. She couldn't flex her biceps at all. Um, I walked up behind her and I tractioned her neck and she suddenly lifted her arm all the way up overhead. And this is where I started the marquee maneuver. When I let go of her head and I, I got her out of that distraction position, her arm fell back down by her side. So all we did was open up the foramen. The nerve root uh, was free to send better messages to the deltoids and the biceps. And she was able to flex uh, both the elbow and the shoulder much better. Uh, this, As a result of this misdiagnosis, uh, she had significant nerve root compression and damage to that nerve root. Uh, by the time we were able to get her into surgery, uh, she had some permanent nerve damage. And uh, 25 years later, she still has difficulty uh, fully elevating her arm, but uh, has uh, certainly had better function in that arm. And uh, as a result of us getting her into surgery as soon as we uh, did see her. Um, so a very interesting case. Again, this, she's the reason I started the marquee maneuver, and it's why I do it uh, you know, on a weekly basis. Now, uh, another one here. Oh, this is a great one. You're going to laugh at this. Uh, not funny, but funny. Uh, so this patient comes to me with a diagnosis of small feet and poor balance. She's a 27-year-old female. And uh, as we were going through her history, everything seemed you know, fairly clear in regards to you know, all of her activities and whatnot, but she was just starting to develop this, this poor balance, tripping over her feet and uh, having difficulty with stairs and whatnot. And we simply started our evaluation and uh, she was complaining of a little bit of back pain. So we took a look at her back to find that she had a nice little tuft of hair back there. Um, and uh, we uh, immediately continued our evaluation to find that she had some myelopathic symptoms throughout the lower extremity and then um, spoke to her provider provider about getting her into a neurologist uh, with the suspicion of spina bifida and uh, sure enough had an x-ray and after 27 years never knew that she had spina bifida and uh, so ended up having surgery to remove some uh, lesions that she had on her spine and uh, did better after that but uh, very interesting and nobody had ever looked at her back just uh, you know made uh, the comment that she had small feet and poor balance and I that, that was that was awful I felt really bad for uh, this patient our next one is a 24 year old female uh, who can't lift her arm after giving birth to her child she was diagnosed with uh, rotator cuff tendonitis. She uh, received two cortisone injections to her uh, subacromial space with zero improvement, starting to develop a lot of upper trapezius discomfort, difficulty elevating her arm, and uh, just uh, a lot of painful motion. And as soon as we had her remove her shirt, uh, we took a look at her arm. She had, uh, you could see her glenohumeral joint. She had no deltoids at all. They were completely atrophied. It was obvious she had a, an axillary nerve palsy when she was pushing during delivery. She grabbed a hold of the bars on the side of the table and started pulling 
hard and um, tractioned, over-tractioned her axillary nerve and ended up with an axillary nerve palsy. Uh, later on, ended up with uh, surgery to help uh, debride some scar tissue around that area, but uh, always had some permanent uh, long-term weakness and atrophy because of that. Uh, so uh, that was diagnosed as uh, and treated as rotator cuff tendonitis before we saw her for axillary nerve palsy. Um, next, we have a 75-year-old male with severe leg pain, lack of knee extension. He was diagnosed with a herniated disc um, in the clinic, clinically, so not by MRI. Uh, patient comes in and uh, has buckling of his leg. He's not able to extend the knee whatsoever while sitting on the edge of the table. And uh, so we uh, have him change into a pair of shorts and uh, we take a look at his back to find that he has this nice old rash at the low back and into the gluteal region. And um, his uh, real diagnosis was shingles. So he, his L3 nerve root was uh, completely affected with shingles. He uh, was six months to eight months before he achieved active knee extension. So we had to place him into a brace that wouldn't allow his leg to collapse. And uh, we had some limiters on his uh, range of motion uh, stops and whatnot. And uh, so we were able to get him back functional. But this is quite painful and, uh, you know, very disabling. Uh, but he definitely did not have a herniated disc. He, uh, he had shingles of the L3 nerve root. Now, let's go on to a 48-year-old male with a quad contusion. This uh, We saw this two years ago. We actually had three quad uh, injuries, um, two in one day that we saw, and uh, one soon after that. So one of them was this uh, 48-year-old male who comes to us with a diagnosis of quad contusion. Has a lot of swelling uh, around the knee, obviously in acute distress, just um, ambulating with full knee extension uh, with basically a peg leg type of uh, motion. He was four weeks after the injury and came in for therapy. And uh, I had him sit on the edge of the table with his leg hanging down, and um, he was having a lot of discomfort with that. So I kind of held his leg in a slightly uh, extended position. And then I asked him to fully extend the leg to zero degrees, and he could not do it. He didn't have it. So we placed him on the table. I basically took my fingers, put it just above his patella, down through his quadricep, and uh, could feel his femur uh, really well. It was obvious he had a complete uh, distal quadricep rupture. I saw another one that day. Um, who also was sent to us with knee strain, um, and he was a complete quad rupture also. So that was two in one day, and then it wasn't long after that we had uh, somebody who uh, also had a quite a mechanism where he fell off of his truck and uh, ruptured his quad. So it was you don't see them very often, but sometimes they just come in batches. And um, so interesting presentation, interesting miss there because I think a quad rupture is really something that's easy to diagnose, just like an Achilles rupture. Our next one here, and this I have seen time and time again, and this is easy to miss, and, um, and I'm not even going to give you a patient or an age or anything on this because I have seen it so often, but tennis elbow. Uh, patients come in with lateral epicondylitis, lateral elbow tendinopathy, and uh, it happens to be a C7 nerve root compression. I've seen so many people undergo treatment for tennis elbow uh, or tendinopathy and maybe get injections, try a tennis elbow strap and do all this stuff uh, when uh, all you do is bring them into the clinic. 
do some traction in the cervical spine and all of a sudden the elbow pain goes away wrist extension strength is less pain is, you know less extent wrist extension is less painful and also um stronger when you traction them so you have to go through your you know upper extremity screening activities and cervical spine screening when you see some of these patients because uh, it may look like something but it is not and lastly here's my uh, all-time favorite we have a 17 year old female softball pitcher who uh, comes into the clinic Uh, the orthopedic diagnosis was rotator cuff tendonitis she comes in and uh, I, I asked her to after going through her history, she really did not have a mechanism of injury. Uh, she just said her shoulders just been progressively getting worse. And uh, in the last couple of games pitching, she's had difficulty uh, pitching to a point where she had to stop. She's been having the shoulder pain. It's giving her nighttime discomfort. And uh, so after the subjective portion of this exam, I asked her to actively flex the shoulder for me. I just wanted to see what her overall motion was like. So when she got to about 45 degrees of flexion, uh, her shoulder dislocated. And uh, so we kind of popped her back into place. It went in pretty easily. And then we asked her to abduct the shoulder and it dislocated at about 45 degrees also and um, popped it back in. And when we put her into a Johnny and took a good look at the back of that shoulder, um, she was completely winging. Her scapula was 90 degree at a 90 degree angle from her thoracic cage. Um, and it was quite evident she had a long thoracic nerve palsy. We did a scapula, a, a scapular assist test. It did help with improving her active range of motion, but she had significant instability. Through doing a shoulder exam, we noticed that uh, she had multi-directional instability of the shoulder. And so with that being said, uh, we contacted her orthopedic surgeon and said, you know, we really think there's something else going on here. And uh, she ended up with a major reconstruction. She tried rehabbing conservatively, but it was obvious that this was not going to improve. So she had to have a scapular stabilizing procedure and uh, treatment for the multidirectional instability all in one. And within six months, she was back to uh, pitching softballs and doing awesome and uh, had a very good outcome after that. But again, another a classic example you need to take a look at the area that you're working on you could see anything from you know small pimples which indicate uh, shingles uh, you might see just a real abnormal or gross motion uh, going on there and uh, that can help with your diagnosis so take a good look at it ask all the right questions take your time with your evaluation if you don't know what it is that's okay I've had patients who come in and I don't know what the diagnosis is and I tell them that too and I'm like you know you have a lot of unusual things going on here I'd like to piece this all together and do a little research come back next time add to that evaluation and see if there's anything we're missing and if uh, if we still feel uncomfortable with that then we'll consult with some people who know more than we do and uh, patients find some sense of relief that you're taking that extra time and that you care and that you're concerned and they are more likely to listen to you and do what you uh, you tell them to do and follow your instructions. So it really helps with compliance. So there we have it. We have seven uh, different diagnoses that were missed. Um, These are just a few of many, but I hope that you come out of this learning from these different scenarios so that you might look at your patient a little differently when you evaluate them. So hope you found today's episode um, a little less serious, but maybe a little more eye-opening. I hope you appreciate it, and uh, and uh, I hope you all have a great day. Be kind to each other, and take care. We hope you've enjoyed the show. For some more awesome content, 
go to orthoevalpal.com. Can't wait to see you there.